from the Alexa in your kitchen to the smart TV in the bedroom. You've got smart devices peppered all over the house. So wouldn't it make sense to place the best tech in every part of your home? The Numi 2.0 is Kohler's most advanced toilet to date, with a sculptural design that elevates it beyond a household object. With advanced technology to bring you the finest in personal comfort and cleansing, it offers personalized setting, from ambient colored lighting and built-in audio speaker system to a heated seat with hands-free opening and closing. It's more than a toilet. It's a work of art. Learn more at Kohler.com. Support for this episode comes from Viator. Experiences are what people love the most about travel. That's why Viator has over 300,000 bookable experiences. So there's always something for everyone. They offer everything from simple tours to extreme adventures. Plus, Viator's travel experiences have millions of real traveler reviews. So you have the information you need to book the best activities for your trip. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. One app, over 300,000 travel experiences you'll remember. Do more with Viator. Welcome to another episode of The Beats on the Fox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. My guest today, Elizabeth Brunig, is a, a notorious internet personality as well as staff writer at The Atlantic. And we were going to talk about babies because there has been a rising tide of condemnation of the childless left coming from J.D. Vance and, and some others out there. You are on the left, but not childless. That's correct. I have two kids and I am on the left. They, I don't know about their politics, haven't asked. <laughs> I have only one kid and I'm not as far to the left, but, you know, similarly, I, I guess that's, you know, arranging the spectrum there. Um, no, but so like, what is this narrative that you've written about recently for The Atlantic? The condemnation of the childless left seems to kind of roll together a couple of things. On the one hand, it's an observation, and this was what J.D. Vance made, an observation that quite a few of the left's young stars in politics, and he pointed out in particular Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, AOC, Pete Buttigieg, Cory Booker. He also cited Kamala Harris, although I wouldn't necessarily call her a young star. She's just sort of a star star. These people, he said, don't have children. Now, Kamala Harris does have stepchildren. It's worth pointing out that she is very close to. But he said, these people, therefore, don't have a stake in the future. They just seemed content to screw around in politics because they don't really care what happens to the country. Only people who have children have a stake in the future, J.D. Vance said. Therefore, people who have kids should be given votes to use on behalf of their children, which is interesting because it seems like he didn't really think that one through. That would hugely favor Democrats. Younger people are the people who have minor children. Older voters who skew Republican, their children are already adults. Younger voters who skew left are the ones who have minor children. Also, poorer people who skew left are the ones who have more children. At any rate, that was his argument. And then it also people sort of added on for him as the critique sort of bled online, 
that leftists have written pieces in various publications sort of angsting about whether they can ethically justify having children when there is climate change happening and so on and so forth. You know, there are all these reasons that leftists cite for not wanting to have children ethically in this day and age. Yeah, so I, I want to put a pin in that sort of, you know, left-wing antinatalism. I think the point about the actual, like, mechanics of this um, giving extra votes to parents of young children idea is worth dwelling on, because I think it's both true, right? If you, like, put all the variables into your statistical machine, like, conservatives have more children than liberals, or however you want to People on the right have more children than people on the left. They're more religious. They get married younger. They have children younger. But if you take the other cut and you just say, what is the population of parents of current children under 18? It's like, if you're 60, it's very unlikely that you have a five-year-old at home. The cohort of parents is people my age. It's people your age. It's people maybe a little bit older or younger than us. And that is a demographic group that, you know, tilts pretty strongly toward Democrats, even though it's true that, like, the conservatives within that cohort have larger families. So I think it doesn't make sense as, like, a policy proposal, but as a way to sort of as as a knock on Harris and, and AOC, I guess Pete and Chastin, uh, since we booked this show, have announced that they have become parents and they did not fill us in with the with the full details there. But part of it, it seemed to me, was just the subtext of sort of denigrating, you know, non-traditional family structures, right? I mean, like, I think Harris does consider herself someone who has children. The Buttigieg's are reproducing through one of several mechanisms that are available to gay couples. Um, these things sort of happen in life, right? But, you know, it's a cultural conservative politics of, you know, you should be like Josh. Right. And so I think that in all likelihood, what's really going on there is not a particular condemnation of these politicians for not having a stake in the future, because plenty of people who have children seem pretty indifferent to the future, <laughs> especially when it comes to sort of forward pitched ideas about climate change, etc. It's more about a sort of cultural distaste for the people who are imagined to be delaying or putting off having kids altogether. So think about Lena Dunham, etc. Dog mommies and the sort of millennial urban social justice oriented online liberal voting not at all invested in the sort of traditional family life type person that you can imagine J.D. Vance and other folks being really, really, really annoyed by on the cultural level. Because on almost every other axis, they're peers. They're all college educated. They're in the same echelon of income. These people are shoulder to shoulder, cheek to jowl. J.D. Vance is a Yale law grad, et cetera, et cetera. So you can imagine he's in very close contact with these sorts of people. And you can imagine there's a lot of angst that arises and friction that arises from the more conservative quarters in that class and the more leftist liberal quarters in that class. 
And here, I mean, you you do see a real kind of difference in people's lifestyles. I mean, we were talking before the show about you moved to the suburbs recently and you're happy out there. I have been in the suburbs for the past few weeks on a kind of in-laws visit. I really miss my urban neighborhood. I have one child, not two and not three or four. And it is definitely true that the more kids you have, the more it makes sense to prioritize space the acquisition of of land versus proximity to cultural amenities. And I grew up in New York City in Greenwich Village. Uh, I am living with a child in Logan Circle. But there is a trade-off, right, between like you want to live in the brunch district versus like you want to maximize yard space. And there is a correlation between people's political views, and especially when people get more affluent, right? And like you can choose to self-actualize, but it's still a constrained choice set. And, you know, some people choose certain things and others choose others. And, you know, there is something about like, what do we valorize in our culture, in our media? And a a lot of content is produced by the kind of people who live in cities, who start families later and who have smaller families. Yeah, it's absolutely true that there was a period in our culture where these sort of sacrifices and burdens and also joys and pleasures of family life were sort of center stage culturally. And parents could look at the media sort of any time and see the things they were going through reflected back at them very clearly. These were, you know, all the sitcoms, right? All in the family and married with children, et cetera, et cetera. And now it's much more typical to look at television and cultural production and see sort of single people, young people, unmarried people, or people for whom having children or raising children is just not part of the conversation at all. So you think about sort of prestige television like Euphoria or even sort of I can't even think of what is on TV right now in terms of sitcoms because I don't have time to watch TV. I feel like our big cultural icons, they're delaying starting a family because they need to pursue their career in superheroism. You know, we haven't really seen people struggling with uh, balancing work and family in the in the Thanos battling industry. Right, exactly. Like Marvel, like, I mean, can Black Widow have a child when she's a spider? Yeah, it's just too hard with all the explosions, multicolored explosions happening <laughs> um, and being Wonder Woman. Uh, that's difficult. <laughs> right. Like Batman has no kids, right? No, Batman has three kids, at least, possibly four. Pardon you. Wait, when? He legally adopts Dick Grayson. Thank you very much. Read your Father's Day issues. And also definitely legally adopts Tim Drake because his parents die. Thank you. And Jason Todd. Okay, but so this is like a Kamala situation. Yeah, well, yes. Well, but then Damien. They're, they're, they're not his natural children. Damien Wayne is actually his biological child with Talia al Ghul. Oh, there you go. Okay. <laughs> okay, so that's important. So Batman is the pro family superhero. We haven't seen this in the movies, though. No, no, because, yeah, because in the films, Batman is an urban dwelling kind of playboy who who's of interest primarily because he's like a solitary lonely figure. And he's sort of the sort of dark side of that lifestyle. But I do think it's become increasingly difficult culturally to imagine someone, and this is a, a pet peeve of mine, which I admit is sort of silly and ridiculous. But in culture, it's difficult to imagine someone who's interesting and sort of has a textured, deep, 
serious inner world who also has children. Those kinds of emotions and feelings and thoughts seem reserved for people who have more serious lives, which are lives without children in them, because children do bring a certain amount of levity to a life. And it is still possible, even as a woman, you know, to have a very serious, a very, very deep inner life with children. You just don't see that depicted very much. Right. But then, you know, then a separate question, right, is like policy. In theory, we are talking about a guy who's running for the United States Senate, and you could try to do things to make it easier for people to have children to address, you know, some of the I mean, people have a lot of practical concerns about having children that are not just about, you know, what sitcoms are going to be on television and the idea of something like a larger child tax credit or, you know, various investments in education or children's health care, things like that, or to try to make it easier to do things like that. And that is not, I think, where the Republican Party has been going. Right. And so I wrote a piece when J.D. Vance's uh, sort of commentary on the childless left came out uh, because the response from the left was just sort of that this is fascist and racist. And I had written a piece to rewind a bit to May in The New York Times when I still worked there for Mother's Day about having kids young. I was 25 when my first baby was born and that I liked it, that it was fun. It surprised me that it made me happy and that it it helped me kind of become who I am as opposed to hindering the sort of development of an identity. And people got really pissed off about it. And that meant a lot more to right-wing websites than it did to me. People getting really pissed off about something that I do or say or write is just a given. It's Twitter. That's what people do on there. They go on there to get mad. A lot of it's kayfabe. A lot of it is also just a residual pissedness from 2016, uh, the sort of Bernie Hillary fights. And so I don't really think anything of it. But when I wrote the piece that I wrote about J.D. Vance saying This is ridiculous. Who cares about the cultural obnoxiousness or non-obnoxiousness of the childless left or whoever is hurting your feelings or whatever on the childless left? The reality is there are actual policy questions here. And on policy, the left is killing it. The Biden child tax credit, the expanded non-phased-in child tax credit is a real gift to parents. That is honestly pro-natal, quote unquote. Not that it necessarily encourages people to have kids, but if you're in the market to have kids, it certainly takes a load off, right? And making it permanent would be a huge deal. I mean, that would be a major gift to children. And this is the kind of point I made. And then the criticism from the right wing after that piece was published is, how can you say this when the left was so mean to you about your piece about enjoying motherhood. And my response was, I just don't care what people say about the cultural inflection, the aesthetics of it, I suppose, because on the politics, aesthetics, whatever, the left is absolutely the pro-child side of things. Let's take a break and talk about that policy stuff. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. 
Trying to keep up with the political news cycle in 2023 can sometimes feel like staring into a black hole of information, where hundreds of thousands of opinions and facts get sucked in and distorted. We know it's a lot, even if you're listening to The Weeds every week. You all know, in order for the average person to stay capital I informed, it can help to find and listen to sources who are working to cut through the noise and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. Not Another Politics Podcast tries to do just that. It was launched and produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. It's not a pundits and politicians podcast. Rather, it takes a research and data approach to analyzing hot button issues. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but here are just a few that you can listen to right now. Whether or not ousting incumbents improves the economy, the extent to which white Americans favor white politicians, and what happens when Fox News viewers tune into CNN instead for a month. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for the weeds comes from Burrow. I love hosting people, so I know that having family or friends stay the night might seem like a great idea until you find yourself scrambling for extra cushions. Or worse, scrounging up an air mattress only to realize it has a hole in it. Well, you won't need to worry about any of that with Burrow's new Shift Sleeper Sofa. Burrow's new Shift Sleeper Sofa can make your guests feel at home. It's an everyday sofa that easily converts into a queen-size bed that they say comfortably sleeps two people. The Shift Sleeper Sofa has layers of memory foam, therapeutic comfort foam, and a supportive core foam to provide an amazing night's sleep for your guests. And like all of Burroughs Furniture, it's a breeze to get in your home with a painless online shopping experience and free shipping to your door. You can check out Burroughs' new Shift Sleeper Sofa and all their furniture at burrowcom slash weeds and get 15% off your Burrow order when you do. That's burrowcom slash weeds for 15% off your Burrow purchase. Burrow.com slash weeds. So another Senate Republican Senate candidate who, like J.D. Vance, is also backed by Peter Thiel, an actual uh, former business partner of his in, in Arizona, Brett Masters, he, he said in response to your piece, he dragged me into the argument because I wrote a book saying explicitly that we should change our public policy in ways that support people having more children. And, you know, his argument was like, well, you know, these like hollow leftists like Iglesias and Brunig, like want to make this all about policy. But like the real thing that matters, I mean, I'm putting words, I'm not quoting him exactly. But I mean, you know, he was trying to say that like, what really matters is the vibes, right? That like, we all need to kind of like hold hands and talk about how motherhood and apple pie are really great and how like urban leftists uh, with no kids are bad people. And, you know, it's interesting to me. I mean, because both like, this is a very classic divide in politics about emphasis on material versus kind of ideational conditions, but also that there has been so much whining I think, from the right over the past five to 10 years about political correctness and safe spaces and all kinds of things like that. And that's essentially the call here, right? The view is that, you know, America's reproducing population 
like needs some kind of safe space from internet haters. That like the problem in society is that like somebody might be having brunch in their late 30s uh, with no kids living in a big city thinking that they are cooler than somebody with three kids. And I feel about that the way conservatives feel about this in other contexts, that it's like you can't live your life in terror that like somebody somewhere disagrees with you. Like, I don't know, there's millions of people in this country, like they're just going to do things. Right. The horror here, like the existential terror is that people who are in your same class, who are similarly educated, because this is all an intra-class fight. This is all taking place in the professional managerial class. People in your class are like hot and fit and living in cool places, doing cool stuff, being cool, producing culture, and they're looking down their noses at you. And you're like getting fat and haggard and being forced to watch Blippi and getting your ass dragged to the Bronx Zoo or whatever, or the National Zoo in your case, for the 10,000th time while these cool people go to brunch and have cool little cocktails and laugh at you. To which I say, like, yeah, but who gives a rat's ass? Like, I have another episode of Blippi to watch, unfortunately. That's my <laughs> that's my lot in life. And, like, I understand that that vibes matter. I mean, unfortunately, vibes do matter. And this is a thing that the right and left agree upon, whether they like it or not. So the pulling down of statues, for instance, is an area where... Vibes are are clearly mattering. That's a vibes issue. So if we pull down the Confederate statues and then we just like put up new statues of nuclear families like mom, dad and three kids just chilling. Yeah, just put up a huge um, Gaia statue, like a big pregnant lady. And, you know, maybe that'll do it. I don't know. But but like I agree. Or like a statue of Daniel Tiger. I think, you know, there are a lot of good messages in Daniel Tiger. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Everyone could use a little Daniel Tiger. Right. Can't we all sort of support this? Right. I, I always think, you know, when tweeting about, you know, Daniel Tiger's uh, advice, you know, when, when you're feeling mad. Yeah. Uh... What do you do with the mad you feel? I think about tweeting that at people all the time. You don't tweet through it. Yeah. <laughs> Shut your ass up. But, it, you know, vibes matter. And the way that people feel you know, it does matter. The problem is it's very hard to politically manage that. If all you want to do politically is make people who don't like you unhappy. We just had four years of that. That was sort of the primary goal of the Trump presidency was owning the libs, making them cry, etc. We had four years of that being the highest political goal. People got what they wanted and they're still miserable. Right. And so that's a very bad road to go down. You can get all that you want. Your political opponents can be unhappy. You can own them. You can make them cry. You can make them panic. But if the underlying policy is no good, you will still be miserable. You will still be screwed, right? Ultimately, what we need is good, stable policy. And the vibes is something that really can't be managed through policy. Politicians can't be in the business of managing the vibes. Well, and I, I would argue that, you know, on some level, the vibes are a lagging indicator of the material culture. Now right? you're so, talking you know, my language. 
Wait, well, you know, if you extend the child tax credit and you like improve the website and, you know, get more people signed up and you, um, you know, have some provision uh, for schooling for three and four year olds, you know, if you change housing policy so that different places become more affordable, you know, people have marginally more children as a result of that. And businesses respond to that, right? Like there are more family friendly restaurants if there are more young children around, like that becomes a market worth catering to. And then that can change people's perception of like, what do I need to give up, right? What are the costs to my lifestyle? It just becomes more normative for people to have children, which changes the culture. And then there's other aspects of culture that like you can't change through policy because like a difference we're parents now, when we were kids, there was no streaming video, right? So if you wanted to make content that would like appeal to parents and children, you kind of had to try to like thread the needle and make a like quote unquote family friendly show. Now Netflix can like hyper target, right? So it's like, my six-year-old loves dino trucks, which, like, I would rather die. But, like, the whole point of TV is to, like, entertain him during times when, like, we're busy. So, like, it doesn't matter, right? Like, it's the grown-up culture can be very grown-up because the stuff for kids is, like, so intense. And, I like, I don't think that's good in a lot of ways. Like, if I could somehow make us all go back to, like, primitive three television channels. This is like my most reactionary view. But like also I have no way to make that happen, right? It's like that's like just me sitting here whining. Right. I mean, I think that it's funny that Mr. Masters and so forth were fussy about your and my commentary on children in particular, because as culture producers, as writers, we're already doing the thing that I think is actually the most useful in vibe modification terms, which is just being people who are willing to talk in public about being happy with children, not in an absolutely cruel and vicious way. I certainly don't think having children's for everyone. I don't think people should be forced. I think there are lots of people who live very happy lives and they don't have their own children. Maybe they're step parents, maybe they're adoptive parents, maybe they're a happy aunt or uncle, or maybe they're a person who's just happier on their own. Like a Batman, you're training a series of young boys to help you in crime. Right. Like you're training, you're fighting crime. You adopt every orphan in Gotham who looks like you for some reason. You know, it's all kinds of people, right? You're a mutant spider human who lives with your elderly aunt. You know, people have different life paths, and I think that's great. But the best thing people can do vibes wise if they want to make a culture that's friendlier to parents. And I don't think it's all that bad, by the way. I think Vance and Masters are really misdiagnosing how severe it is. It's certainly not like you walk down the street with a stroller and get egged. That's not the case at all. So I really, really don't want to overstate the problem. But in these tiny little enclaves of kind of left professional managerial class folks where it is maybe a touch cooler on the warm to cool scale in terms of young parenthood, especially or parenthood as a goal, you know, the best thing you can do is just talk about being happy and having kids and 
you know, meet people where they are, answer their questions, talk about it, and just kind of lead by example. I mean, this was an interesting thing about your other piece that you alluded to, right? Because you basically wrote for Mother's Day about having your first child at what is roughly the national average age, but is unusually young for like a New York Times writer. And and that was sort of like the whole tension of the discourse there, right? Like it's both like not that unusual, but is sort of locally unusual, right? And I think you did not propound like an explicit thesis, but there was an implication that like maybe other young college graduates should rethink their assumption that this is something you have to wait 10 years out of school to go do, right? I mean, I I think that's like why the piece was seen as provocative, because I, I don't know. I mean, people don't just read things as like, Ah, here's one person just talking about her life. No, and I think that's exactly what I was saying. And I think I was pretty upfront about it was just there's a kind of presumption, especially among people who, like myself, go to college, go to grad school, are going to get sort of professional class jobs that you need to put off having kids because it's like a job, right, where you need experience and you need to be highly, highly prepared and have a kind of expertise And there are certain things that if you don't accomplish them before having a child, you'll never accomplish them. And all I meant to say is, well, if you're on the fence and you'd like to have a child, maybe you're thinking about it or you think it would make you happy or it's something you want to do, but you feel like you're just a bit early. And so you're waiting out of a sense of obligation. You don't actually have to wait. There are things that you can still accomplish after you have a child. It's okay. Your life goes on. You're still alive. You're still changing and growing. And it's still totally possible and completely within your reach to continue accomplishing things and growing as a person. And this relates to, right, there's this there's this idea of like capstone versus cornerstone marriage, right? And this is, you know, I mean, I, I have been a typical, highly educated city dwelling professional with something more like a capstone marriage, which means like, you know, you go, you leave school, you get a job, you do a couple jobs, you establish sort of clarity that like, this is what you are doing. And then from that standpoint, you get married and go do other things versus a more traditional vision, which is like very young people would get married. And then you like build your whole life together. You know, and that's a a cultural tension that we're navigating in American society and where I do think, you know, I mean, the switch to the sort of capstone mindset has not necessarily turned out that well for society as a whole. Yeah, that's sort of an ongoing debate. Uh, Do you get married and it's kind of the beginning of you becoming an adult or is it kind of the end of your maturation process? And, you know, there are arguments for doing it either way. I can only speak from the way I did it. I got married relatively young. I was 23. And I also married a policy mat. Sure. Yeah. It's what everyone should do. (laughs) There should be a policy mat in every house. Age appropriate. Well, there's there's like a high supply of guys named Matt in a particular birth cohort. Yeah. Who do wonkery. But no more. You know, it's like I look on the playground and I'm like, are there any kids named Matt anymore? And it's it's done. Uh, People didn't like our tweets. It's over. 
the mats are spent. <laughs> uh, so I married my high school sweetheart, right? So we'd been together since he was 18 and I was 16. We got married when I was 23 because that's when he finished law school and I finished grad school. And that had been our deal. So we got married in a courthouse. And then, you know, by 25, we had a baby. And that worked really well for us. You know, we supported each other and we had known each other a really long time and been together a really long time. Um, so we were ready to set up house and work together very, very fastidiously to accomplish what we knew we wanted and needed to accomplish together as a household. Is it the right thing for everybody? Again, I mean, that's the annoying thing about trying to make pronouncements about culture is, you know, obviously there are going to be quite a lot of people who benefit from doing things in a very different way. So I find it difficult to kind of prescribe a life path. Yeah. I mean, I think if anyone out there listened to uh, the weeds earlier this week about sort of growth of master's degrees and sort of credentialism and stuff in, in that space, I mean, that is a policy area where, you know, I do think we should think about the consequences of like tacking on more and more years of expected schooling uh, for people to sort of get good jobs. You know, it changes whole life paths sometimes. I mean, not always, you guys have many degrees. Okay, let's take a break. And I, I want to talk about policy sort of left-wing antinatalism. We all need an upgrade every once in a while, whether it's that outdated car in your garage or that cell phone that you bought over three years ago. It's good to have the best technology around. And great news, because now you can have the most advanced technology in the privacy of your own home. The Numi 2.0 is Kohler's most advanced toilet to date. With a sculptural design that elevates it beyond a household object, the smart toilet combines unmatched aesthetics with cutting-edge technology to bring you the finest in personal comfort and cleansing. It offers personalized settings that let you fine-tune every option to your exact preferences. From ambient colored lighting and a built-in audio speaker system to the heated seat with hands-free opening and closing. Plus, the Numi 2.0 comes equipped with Power Saver Mode for energy efficiency and emergency flush for power outages, so you don't have to worry about wasted energy. Connecting you to an oasis of cleanliness and comfort, the Numi 2.0 can revolutionize your bathroom, making it more than a toilet. It's a work of art. Learn more at Kohler.com. Support for this episode comes from Viator. Sure, a good souvenir is always fun, but it's the experiences that people love the most about traveling. When you get back home, that t-shirt might fade and that snow globe might break, but it's those once-in-a-lifetime memories that will last. Viator is a website and app where you can book travel experiences like architectural sightseeing, snorkeling excursions, sunset cruises, and so much more. With Viator, you can reserve everything from simple tours to thrilling adventures with over 300,000 bookable experiences in 190 countries. Whether you're a foodie, a history buff, or an adrenaline junkie, there's something for everyone. Plus, Viator's travel experiences have millions of real traveler reviews, so you can have the information you need to book the best activities for your trip. When you book a travel experience with Viator, there's always flexibility and support with free cancellation, payment options, and 24-7 service. Make memories that will last forever with Viator. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. One app, over 300,000 travel experiences you'll remember. Do more with Viator. So this was the thing that, that some conservatives said you weren't uh, wrestling with or talking about, which is that 
Something I definitely discovered when I was out promoting One Billion Americans is that there is a big constituency of people. I would say not like Democratic Party politicians or the heads of major progressive groups, but just like people who will say that like it's bad to have children because of their environmental impact. And, you know, these columns get written about twice a year in each like mainstream and center left publication. I think some British group like gave a prize to one of their princes for like not having too many children or something like that. So like this is a real idea, right? That like in our moment of ecological crisis, it is selfish to have children. And the sort of wise, high-minded thing to do is to not do that. And I don't know, like nobody has like passed a law inspired by like, you know, let's not have kids. But it is a real argument that's out there that's different from just sort of like what's cool and what isn't. Right. Yes. I mean, there are Definitely policy proposals that float around on the left that would be problematic for parents. There are the sort of incendiary ones that fly out, like you said, once or twice a year. Somebody writes a hot column in The Guardian or whatever that's about rewarding people for having fewer children. Or I think there was a documentary about... uh, There was a surgeon who sort of traveled the world giving free vasectomies and even paying men to receive vasectomies in developing countries, which is really sick. (laughs) But, yeah, there are leftist policies that would say we should pay or reward people to be sterilized. Um, You see those proposals periodically. I find that pretty bizarre and pretty reprehensible, especially When we're talking about developing countries in particular, that seems very, very pith helmet to me. And then you see, I think, things that are not so obviously antinatalist, but would still make life a little harder for parents. So you sometimes see policies, for instance, that would eliminate parental leave, but would create all-purpose family leave which you could take to care for elderly family members, siblings, et cetera, et cetera, which would just kind of serve as, you know, any any familial obligation will be met by taking this leave. As to where, as a parent, I would rather have a pool of protected leave for parental obligations, you know, maternity leave, and then other leave to be taken for dealing with other issues, vacation sick leave, whatever, some kind of thing can be cobbled together. But I do think that parental leave is a is a special and very particular thing because it's a special and very particular obligation. And so, you know, you do see those kinds of policies. What I will say about them is I just don't ever see them get any traction whatsoever from actually existing politicians. So they get thrown out in The Guardian. They get batted around between journalists They just seem like expressions of exasperation, right? Just like J.D. Vance will express exasperation with politics by saying, I'm tired of the childless left. These politicians have no stake in the future. Let's give votes to everyone who has children, one vote per child that goes to the parents with the implication that we can then vote out these childless politicians. You get expressions of exasperation with the childful 
from the childless. And those come out like this. Climate change is the fault of all these breeders. We need to disempower them or stop them somehow. Let's uh, disincentivize having children or incentivize not having children with these blah, blah, blah programs. But they never seem to actually pick up any kind of steam in politics. Right. Well, and conversely, I mean, I think it would be great if Republicans decided they need to get behind a national paid parental leave plan to like head off, you know, the childless left's devious pet leave agenda or something like that. You know, so go do it. Right. I mean, it's that like the entire universe of proposals to give anyone leave under any circumstances for anything like exists within a Democratic Party ambit. So you then have like different flavors of leave debating against each other. You know, what What I always think is interesting in this regard is that you never see a proposal to means test K-12 education, which I think would be the most straightforward antinatalist sort of policy that is out there where you could say, look, we are protecting the most vulnerable children, but we don't need Matt Iglesias just sending his kid to freaking public school and paying no money for it. You know, because like, it's true. Like, I can afford to pay tuition if you made me do it. You know, the way that we means test lots and lots of other programs. And, you know, the downside to means testing of public school is that it would make it I think much less likely that sort of like normal middle class people would have as many children as they have. Because, you know, yes, like you can afford it, but like you wouldn't want to. Like bearing those costs would be a strain on everyone. But nobody says that, right? Like even like Democrats who love means testing, you know, it's a status quo bias thing, but no one is looking at it and being like, here we go, subsidizing all these children living high on the hog, you know, going to high school, doing their sports and learning to read. It's just like a non-starter in the universe when if you were serious, right, if you wanted to take this climate doomerism seriously, like that's what you should do. And I don't know. I don't agree with that, so I don't want to give people any ideas. But at the same time, that's that's what I would do. If I wanted to discourage people from having children without increasing poverty, I would say we got to means test the middle schools. Yes. And I think you do periodically see, you know, just to bring it back to social media, someone grumbling along the lines of why do I have to pay taxes that support public schools when I don't have children? And the response is inevitably shut up, idiot, from the left, because the left is so interested in having programs that rely on a relatively large tax base, whether or not the particular individual is using the program or using it as much as others will use it, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that's just a non-starter of an argument, means testing schools on the left for so many reasons. I also think, and this is something else that I brought up in my piece, so many of the people on the childless left are only childless temporarily. It's the delaying left, really. I don't know if AOC or Cory Booker will ever have children, but I wouldn't place money on them never having kids. AOC in particular is still very young. And Buttigieg, as you said, since J.D. Vance made his comments, has announced that he and his husband will be raising a child. Kamala Harris, again, is very close to her stepchildren with her husband. But I would not be surprised at all 
if AOC went on to have children. Ilhan Omar does have a daughter, by the way. Thank you very much. Surprising that she, typically the bête noire of the right, was not mentioned in this particular case. But anytime you're dealing with someone in their 30s, even their early to mid 30s, it's just very likely to me that that person will have children, just statistically. Most people have kids. Wait, well, I think, I mean, a- a- AOC is is to the point, right? Because this is the sort of, I think, like the real cultural divide in America is that I hear about a 31-year-old woman living in New York who's very successful in her career and does not have a child. And to me, that's both like normal. It's like socioculturally normal locally. And also, it doesn't lead me to any strong conclusions that like she will be childless like it would be unusual for somebody like among other things it seems like uh, being a member of congress is like not a great job to pair with parenting there is a lot of uh shuttling back and forth necessarily involved in that work so it doesn't like surprise me to see something like that and yet it is normal for residents of, you know, college-educated residents of big cities to have kids in their late 30s. But they do wind up having fewer children, you know, sort of as a, as a result of that kind of thing. But that's really where the policy stuff, I think, matters the most, because it's really unlikely to me that you're going to go from being a, like, I don't want kids in my life, this does not interest me, to, like, yes, I want to be the mother of three based on a tax credit. But like micro decisions about timing, like, am I ready to do this now? That does depend a lot on, you know, money. Like that's exactly the kind of thing that people think about, right? They look at, well, what would it cost us to rent a bigger place? How many hours do we need to put in at work? What is the cost of childcare? And that like margin of reality is where policy makes the difference. Right. I agree completely. And it is very much a matter of child care. So when you're young and work is really, really critical, you don't have the level of experience. You're probably not a manager. You can't really call your own shots at work. Having stable child care that's affordable means that you're certain that you'll be able to go back to work. So a guaranteed leave built in and then a guaranteed subsidized or free child care, preferably, is a huge difference, right? So these are the kinds of programs that I really dream about for parents. They wouldn't push anyone to have children. And like you said, they're not going to, I think, inculcate the desire for a Romney-sized family into your average New York liberal But they might make having kids at, you know, 28, 29, 30, much more palatable to uh, the sort of urban dwelling millennial menace than having, you know, feeling the need to wait until 35, 36, 37. And on the AOC note, I also just want to add, I hate to speculate on I feel like it's so slimy to speculate on why someone is or isn't waiting or will or won't have children Like you sort of never know what somebody's going through or struggling with or dealing with. And I'm sorry that she got dragged into this whole speculative spectacle by Vance. And I'm sorry for participating in it. But, you know, that's the politics we have right now. But the point is that on the margins, these kinds of policies, they seem small, but they're a huge difference to parents as to where the vibes seem really big 
and uh, appear to be very dramatic because they are emotionally very impactful. But I'm not sure at the end of the day that they are more powerful than those serious calculations people make sitting at the table at night when they're thinking about having a kid. Can we afford this, right? Is it, is it even feasible? Those are real questions. I would also say, you know, my my personal life has been like cartoonishly in the liberal bubble. Like I, I grew up in New York. My dad works at Hollywood. My mom was a journalist. I moved to D.C. So, you know, I'm like mainlining this kind of like urban progressive culture day in, day out my whole life. I've been in a kind of rural exurban-y part of Texas, you know, for a while now doing remote stuff, uh, taking my taking my kid to visit his grandparents. And one thing that has really struck me is that there is so much more insulation from the liberal vibes out here than the Republican Party politicians who represent these areas like to say there is. Like, for better or worse, you know? But, like, walking around Kerrville, the only virtue signaling that you see anybody do is, like, putting up Bible quotes on their walls or erecting giant crucifixes and hills uh, in various places. And it's just like not true, I think, that people in the heartland are like besieged by left wing cultural memes unless like entrepreneurs like want to funnel them. You know, you can do like microwave ray collection and like make people feel like all these urban liberals are like constantly shitting on you or something. But it's not really true. Like everyone is just pretty, I don't know, people just live their lives. Right. I mean, I grew up in North Texas and I just spent last weekend with my folks, actually. And they see you know, sort of clips on Fox when there is a particularly clippable section of, uh, you know, of something, you know, when something really outrageous would happen on girls that might wind up on Fox, etc. But it's also the case that people outside of these kind of metropoles are also totally confident in their way of life and views. It doesn't really hurt them to see what's going on in the metropoles. So, you know, there's an awareness, but what does it matter? It's it's not as devastating, I think, as one might conclude from reading tweets. But I mean, I guess, you know, to, to your to your point, right? Like, so Fox, I mean, this again, it's like the main way that I have seen, you know, people interacting with like progressive cultural values here is that Tucker Carlson will clip them and then package them as very alarming and then tell people about all this terrible stuff that's happening. And that's like a good business for him, I guess. He's a very successful television host. But it's like, if you want to know like who makes people feel besieged by their cultural enemies, it's like they're friends doing it for profit. And I mean, and I'm sure that something of the same vein happens in the blue zones. You know, I I used to work at Think Progress and a big thing we would do there is find like the most insane thing a Republican state legislator said that day. And there are like thousands of state legislators in America. And some of them are saying something very insane on any given day. And like you can pick that up and broadcast it to the world. And for a while, it was a good traffic generation strategy. But I just feel like it makes everyone feel 
like angrier than they need to be. Yeah. I mean, I think that, again, in my piece, part of what I was trying to gift to the world is my personal feeling that it's sort of your choice whether you want to be pissed off uh, and feel besieged and uh, out of control or not. Just because someone says that they look down on you and that uh, you're a problem or whatever, just because everybody gets mad about your Mother's Day piece and calls you a fascist or a trad cath or whatever, it's completely within your control whether you're going to care. At the end of the day, it's just people being mad and they'll be mad about something else tomorrow. I alluded to this before, but I, I, I really do feel that watching Daniel Tiger with, with my kid taught me some valuable lessons about emotional control. And, you know, when you feel so mad that you want to roar, you can take a deep breath and count to four. And adult-focused media, like, does not tend to deliver that message, uh, right? Like, tries to convince people that a good thing to do in your life is to be really mad all the time. At everybody. And I mean, I think a personal growth for me as a parent has been trying to think more seriously about what sort of advice you want to give like a tiny person <laughs> growing up and like what behavior do you want to model for them? And it just like seems very clear. It's like you try to, you know, raise kids to be calmer than they naturally are about things, right? That like kids are always getting upset about different stuff. But like, you know, it's not bad. But like, growth is about trying to control yourself and have a little bit of poise in these situations. But on social media, we have like grownups doing tantrums and convincing themselves that it's like high politics. And that it's normal or acceptable. I mean, I think about Twitter as like being at the grocery store. So like you can make jokes and be silly, like you could talk to a friend and be silly and make jokes at the grocery store. But when people are absolutely freaking out and, you know, shouting slurs and condemnations and making threats and so forth, that is just totally bizarre behavior to me. What I tell my daughter, my five-year-old, is, you know, emotions are really big and they're really strong, but your intellect, your rational mind, your thoughts are actually correct. And your emotions are oftentimes totally wrong. And they don't correspond to reality at all. So you can feel really big anger about something really small. <laughs> and you've just got to use your mind there you go. <laughs> to control <Exactly>. your behavior. <laughs> No, I mean, I think I think that's exactly right. And that is the message that American society needs to hear. I'm just going to put it in my Twitter bio. Your feelings are wrong. Use your <laughs> mind. <laughs> You're a big kid now, America. <laughs> it's, time to, it's time to get a grip. Um, awesome. So thank you so much. Thanks, as always, to our sponsors, our producer, Neth Smith-Savadov. And the Weeds will be back on Tuesday. When you surround yourself with the best tech, that's an instant level up. So shouldn't you level up in every room of your house? The Numi 2.0 is Kohler's most advanced toilet to date, with a sculptural design that elevates it beyond a household object, and cutting-edge technology to bring you the finest in personal comfort and cleansing. It offers personalized settings to match your exact preferences, from ambient-colored lighting and a built-in audio speaker system, to the heated seat with hands-free opening and closing. 
it's more than a toilet. It's a work of art. Learn more at Kohler.com.